Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Bresky and I'm the Deputy Director. Welcome to another week from Wisconsin. We are post-primary and we'll briefly debrief the primary election and look forward to the general. And we'll do that with our panel, which means Rebecca Lynch is sitting across from me. Rebecca is with the Wisconsin Working Families Party. Rebecca, great to have you this week again. Hey, Matt. And as always, Robert Craig, Executive Director here at Citizen Action. Robert, welcome. Good day, everyone. So the primary election is come and gone, and I think, as people know, Citizen Action had endorsed Tim Burns in that race, but we want to congratulate Rebecca Dallet for getting and advancing very handily. She won very soundly over Tim, if you're looking at what we would ostensibly call the two non-conservative or uh, progressive candidates. Um, but want to get the panel's immediate reaction to the race, um, and in particular, with an eye towards April, right, and where we're at, just in summary, Sronic, and I'm probably butchering his name, but we're all going to get to know it much better over the next uh, six weeks, uh, won, and had uh, about, uh, I want to make sure I get the number right here, had 46% uh, uh, of the vote, where uh, Dallet had 36 and Burns 18. I'll start by saying this is fairly similar to the previous election going into the primary, do, but do any of you, it's your response, we'll start with Rebecca, see something maybe different happening in April than we've had the last few cycles? Well, you know, one of the things I would note is that turnout was significantly higher than we predicted at the Working Families Party, and then I think most people predicted uh, the Wisconsin State Journal, <clears throat> uh, the Wisconsin State Journal noted that in the past elections, recent past elections, I had state Supreme Court at the top of the ballot. 7% was around where turnout was. And uh, this time statewide, it was over 11%, which is pretty extraordinary when you consider the weather that we experienced all over the state. And I think that that is uh, part and parcel of our like hyper-politicized environment right now. If people are calling it a wave year. I think it's pretty clear that Republicans also came out. I think folks are just paying yeah. attention. Yeah, both sides appeared to have turned out, although obviously if you add up it looks like there is more energy on the progressive side in terms of, you know, if you were to add Burns and Dallet. Robert, do you, what, what's your sense? Uh, first, if you have any thoughts coming out of the primary or looking forward. Well, I think the prevailing paradigm for running for judge has prevailed, and therefore we're all going to be sentenced to further years and years of allegedly neutral independent judges who say they can't tell us their values and opinions because they might rule on it, but why do we vote for them if we don't know uh, what kind of principles they would bring to ruling, and why do we have the Republican Party paying for most of Mr. Skronik's campaign and the and the dark money groups? Actually, so, even in-kinding staff, right? Yes, like he doesn't exactly. function without the Republican Party exactly. apparatus. So perhaps in this context, because it, I thought what Tim Burns was doing was a fresh of breath of fresh air, he may not have had the campaign infrastructure, so I'm not saying it's a pure test of changing the model, but so far, not successful. We'll be told by the political professionals, I'm sure, that you just can't do that, and they'll tell all future candidates you just can't do that. Robert, so that is one that. real good point that we do need to underscore is I, I think it's clear that Dalit probably had a better campaign, right? Let's And let's give Dalit credit I don't for know. that. I would say a, a better financed campaign. That, that's fine. But in the current environment, it ultimately, you know, sort of what we are dealing with... They're she usually, won those are usually closely right? related, not always. It leads to votes. It, it led to votes for her. Um, but you do see in areas, rural areas like Pepin County, where Burns won, right? So it's not like, and I don't know if it wasn't contested there, but I do think where you had media markets and concentrations, Dallet, 
definitely uh, did well, including like Wausau and Milwaukee. But Robert, I interrupted you. Right. So, but we have a general where there's a clear uh, Democrat, though, you know, so, some areas where we really don't know how progressive she is, but certainly a Democrat and a clear right wing Republican. And in our previous cycles with this setup, we've lost. So, I mean, uh, Judge Dallet ran a very good campaign in the primary, obviously, based on the results. Uh, the fact that the com combination of Dallet and Burns uh, beats Gronick uh, should not be taken overly interpreted because that's been the case in some previous Supreme Court primaries and there's a much bigger electorate in April than there is in February. Absolutely. And so it's a very different electorate and there's going to be ungodly amounts of money. And we just got to be aware that in the, and this is a real problem for Supreme Court races, in the post-Citizens United environment that right-wing judges have created, allegedly neutral arbiters of the Constitution, let me repeat, uh, uh, folks like Judge Scalia uh, and, uh, and many others, uh, Literally, the money is ramping up because it's unregulated. You don't know where it comes from. Because we have such income inequality, there are more and more billionaires being minted uh, through various uh, uh, rigging of the system in order to spend this money secretly. And, uh, it, and the only alternative is ma a mass-based grassroots politics. And guess what? That's a little harder in a state Supreme Court race where people don't take positions on, on what they actually believe in. So we, I think it's much easier, ironically, to win a U.S. Senate race or a governor's race than a state Supreme Court race. Yep, Rebecca. And, though I will say I think there is a lot of – there is a strong appetite among the electorate, particularly the electorate on the left, to elect more Democratic women and I do think that that is an exception to what otherwise I think is true about what you just said. I'm glad you brought that up. I was, I was actually going to talk about that. But even also broader than just also electing women, we are in a, a cycle here where there is momentum. And so Robert's right. We're going to have a lot larger turnout in the general. The question is going to be, where does that turnout come from, right? And, and some of that is a matter of energy. And I, and I agree with Robert on the idea that there could be issues as it relates to the candidate, but the broader environment, I do think Democrats or progressives are energized. That could be really critical in this, in this race. If the race is close, I would love the idea that there's some sort of women's march wave going on, starting with the women's march, uh, which we passed the first anniversary of a little while ago. Uh, but it's going to have to be reflected in actual grassroots activism boots on the ground at some point, right? Otherwise, it, otherwise it, it's hard to see it matching the money. Now, I'm not saying I think Dallet, Judge Dallet's a very strong candidate, obviously, and we should not assume she can't win. I'm just saying that we're up against a lot, and I don't think she has, my guess is, plans for a grassroots army. And so it puts it on all of us, like progressive organizations, to think about that. Yeah, no, well, look, I'm not here to question the idea that it will, that it, it has to not, it has to end up in boots on the ground. That my point being that I do think there is a excitement amongst activists that could lead to boots on the ground regardless of the candidate, right? And if you just look back at SD10, we were outspent significantly in SD10, some, by some accounts, three to one. But there was tremendous activity and excitement on the ground, especially in a short, compressed time, right? This is a relatively compressed time. It's, it's, it's not like a special, so I would expect conservative and, or Republican turnout to be much better than SD10, but we're also in a better 
uh, statewide position than SD10. That, let's remember, that was like a 40% Democratic district that was won. So there is an environment here that could lead to the boots on the ground, regardless of candidate. But that is certainly an open question, Rebecca. Well, I, and I do think, you know, we were, the, the Democratic Party infrastructure, which was an important part of SD10's victory. Um, Absolutely. Let us not forget, and you did mention how the Republican Party was incoming staff time to the conservative in this race. The Democratic Party infrastructure was paralyzed with two Democrats in the race, and now I think we'll have the opportunity to run coordinated campaigns. Uh, for those of us who want to be a part of that, we can plug in. There will probably be some like stuff happening outside yep. of the coordination. Uh, but I think now we're all you know playing to the same tune, and uh, our organizations, you know, from the far left of the party, be they Working Families Party, Citizen Action, our Wisconsin Revolution, to um, the establishment, will all be on the same page. And I think also, I hope, uh, the donor class will all be on the same page. I mean, at the end of the day, we cannot compete with WMC, which dumped, I, I don't remember, the $300,000, I mean, it was close to a million dollars spent on the conservative in this race. We will never be near that amount of money, but to compete statewide, we need both the grassroots and we need to get our message out through media as well. And it's just begun. They're gonna set records every election cycle. And I, and I really think that we need to find, and I'm sure people are you know, f uh, higher on the pay grade than I am are thinking about this, but we need to nationalize this race because it's of national importance and we need, we need more help. So with that, we're gonna, we're gonna talk more. We'll obviously continue to talk about the Supreme Court. We think it's very important, but before we go to break, we do wanna mention a number of local races and um, we've had a lot of members that, we know there's well over 30 members that are running for offices in just four of the regions where we have organizing cooperatives. So we wanted to point out a couple of members uh, who had important primary elections uh, around the state. Uh, that includes here in Milwaukee County, Steve Shea, who is an AFT 212 uh, member and also an organizing cooperative member. He advanced in a very competitive primary um, in first uh, County Board District 8. Uh, the incumbent actually lost in that race, was knocked out. Um, in this race, what our listeners who don't live in Milwaukee should understand, uh, the candidate who won, James Davies, uh, was endorsed and is being supported by the county executive here, Chris Abley, who spent significant amounts of money, we believe over $30,000 of money, and including, was it like eight, nine mailers? So um, way outspent, but uh, Steve is through, and there is a pathway to victory there, but there is gonna be a lot of work, and so we're gonna encourage a lot of our listeners uh, over the next six weeks to be helping out Steve. I wanna also talk about one other member bef uh, uh, before we go, and that is Leah Schreiber-Johnson here in Milwaukee. Um, in Oak Creek. She uh, got through her primary in the Oak Creek Franklin School Board. We got to get out of here. We got to take a break. We'll be right back after the break again. We're Citizen Action. We're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. Welcome back. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. We are Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. We are just reviewing the spring primary election. And before we left, we were just talking about uh, some of our candidates that had important primaries in the Milwaukee area, but um, our show has a statewide listenership, and we also wanted to, I wanted to mention a couple of other members in other regions, including in um, Eau Claire, our co-op member there, Nancy Coffey, beaten incumbent by double the votes. She nearly doubled the incumbent uh, in her primary uh, for county board, so we're very excited about Nancy Coffey's efforts there. And then also in Wausau, 
uh, Nancy Stencil advanced to her uh, into the general election in Marathon County. And also very exciting, our member Yilan Zhang is now in the uh, finals for uh, Western, the Village of Western Trustees. So we're very excited about... Weston, you mean? Weston, excuse me. Weston Trustee. I actually visit Western regularly. One of my mm. racer friends uh, tears up his suburb regularly with motorbikes. So anyways, the town of Weston. Shout out to the Ramsey family. Uh, so... Again, want to thank all of the members who got out and supported uh, our candidates in the primary. There will be significantly more effort here in the next upcoming weeks. Uh, and so really want to encourage people to get involved. Please reach out to one of your co-op organizers uh, to try to get involved. Also, before we switch topics, and we're going to talk a little health care, um, I do want to mention that uh, we have talked about how we're doing an endorsement process for the governor's race here in Wisconsin where... Uh, with our members where we're doing forums uh, in the four regions. And our second forum is going to be occurring in Wausau on March 17th at 9.30 at the Wausau Labor Temple. And I just want to, other listeners in the Wausau area, encourage you to come. Again, we'll be injecting our new platform, which you can find on our website, into this race and asking the candidates questions. So members will be asking questions. We're working on that right now. Um, but it is open to the public. If you're not a member, we really want you to come. We want you to consider joining. Um, and we'll be doing evaluations uh, and getting uh, evaluations of our members as to what they think about where the candidates are, what issues, what they're talking about uh, to help us think about the governor's race. So hopefully you can make it to that. But with that, we've got to change to topics of policy and issues that are going on. Robert, we want to quick get a health care update since we talked last week about Governor Walker's effort to, let's be blunt, cover his keister on health care and this reinsurance plan, which Citizen Action and its co-op and Kevin Kane and others helped blow up. But I know there's more and you have some updates. So I want to kick it to you for just the latest on what Walker's been doing around health care. Well... A lot of people know that the legislature has been very active this week, and the assembly in particular, because it needs to excuse itself to use public dollars and its salaries to reelect itself uh, for the rest of the year. They like to talk about other people not working, like trying to raise work requirements to 30 hours for low-income people for food shares, but they, on the taxpayer dime, are planning to take seven, eight months off, right? to do pretty much reelect themselves. At least now, Robert, you never know, there could be a special section, session, session called, right, for any ideas to sort of cover other political pieces. While you mention that, it is worth pointing out, our members in Green Bay uh, today, Thursday, while we record, are, work, are having an event with Senator Hansen to expose part of what Robert just talked about, that Senate District 1 is without representation right now while we're deciding all these important things. And as as I just mentioned, you know, while they may be going on a vacation, they could call a special session at any time, and those folks have no representation. But anyways, Robert, back to what they're doing on health care. So we have the Walker Stabilization Plan, as he calls it, from his state of the state, which is his rebranding and repositioning on health care. And uh, he has been on tour. He was in Eau Claire this week touting it and saying... Uh, uh, being being pictured with doctors, looking at images of you know X-rays. He wasn't with insurance companies who are going to profit from this. 
Uh, no, he no. was he was he was surrounded by people in in white lab coats, oh, right? Okay, not, oh, he and saying how this is going to help everyone who has uh, d- d- who 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 has doesn't have good insurance, uh, you know, has high premiums. Uh, the problem being with reinsurance, it's a corporate subsidy, two hundred million dollars, and there's no requirement that they actually uh, reduce premiums or increase increase or maintain their geographic reach, so more people have access to the plans at all. In other states, they have done it. They have very rigorous rate review, like some of what you have in a public utility for electric, electrical rates or, or gas rates, where they have where the state regulators look at their rates and decide whether they're justified or not and could say you're not passing the reinsurance subsidy on. Here, we don't do that. And so it's just like, it's like Foxconn. It's nothing like BadgerCare public option, where it would lo- lower premiums by 38%. So uh, this passed this week in the assembly, Walker's on tour. And then they're also in the midst of passing another plan, which is really bad. Uh, it's allow it's called association plans. It's like the Chamber of Commerce can have its plan own plan that small businesses come into, right? Can the Working Families Party get its own plan? Uh, maybe, but here's the thing: it's not really they're insurance. Really big. They have like hundreds of organizers it's, here. It's not really insurance, right? Uh, so it does. It's not regulated, so it doesn't have essential health benefits. Okay, so it cannot have mammograms, it cannot have mental health, it go, or basically it's the kind of insurance that it, it, it's a lot cheaper until you actually need it, and then it, it's it, a lot it, more expensive and you can't get life-saving treatment. It sucks, basically. It, it also allows pre-existing condition discrimination in that the insurers, though they're not technically insurers, can pick and choose how much to charge each employer, and so people have older workers with a lot of health conditions, they can just charge a price they can't afford, and so therefore... They end up not only denying them coverage, which is pre-existing addition discrimination, they also end up siphoning out healthy people from the market, raising rates for everyone else in the uh, marketplace. And so, therefore, making it much worse again for people with pre-existing conditions, have it now or have it in the future. Let me tell you how bad this is. The Democrats put in, because various special interests started arising, the chiropractors got all upset, so chiropractory is now covered, for example. There are a couple other interest groups that got involved. When the Democrats put in a requirement, uh, this, was a, this was an amendment, uh, to cover mammograms, it went down on a party-line vote. So the plans don't need to cover mammograms. That, that's basically all you need to know. So, again, the reason this is really a, applicable, though, is we, we're just talking about the governors, we're talking about elections, right? There needs to be this vision, right? Badger care public option. And... And we need to have Democrats both running for governor and, and in the Assembly, in the Senate, talking about this. And eight of the nine uh, leading candidates for governor are doing so. Um, I would point out that not usually a place, probably Rebecca doesn't go here for her political news, but Modern Healthcare, a national healthcare <laughs> magazine, has a story about this where Citizen Action Wisconsin is quoted, and it frames it as a desperate attempt by Walker to try to save his electoral bacon in the election. This is from Modern Healthcare, but it it details the debate and talks about the popularity of reinsurance growing among Republicans as some sort of cover where they can claim they care about lowering premiums and dealing with the damage damage of the sabotage they've been doing for years and are still doing to the Affordable Care Act. Yeah, no. Look, this this is uh, this is definitely one of those those issues where they're in serious trouble, and we need to be out front on it and proposing real solutions. So, uh, we're going to continue to stay out front on this issue. Um, Want to bring up 
before we go to break, and we'll probably have to talk mostly about this after break, is um, what our Attorney General has been up to. Um, we don't talk enough, actually, about our Attorney General because, again, with an eye on the fall, we have a really good candidate running, good progressive Josh Call, and he got into the news taking on the AG for his new proposal, which is he wants to arm every teacher. Rebecca, I know um, when, when we do our issue profiles for what the governor candidate should be working on, this is now the top issue, right? Arming teachers in school. Where, what? I mean, really? <laughs> He's getting himself to the right of Trump maybe here. It, it is really um, fascinating to me from like a tactical perspective how the Republican Party in Wisconsin is able to seize on national issues uh, to amplify them even to the ridiculous uh, end of things, but to get news and to rev people up and the Democrats don't seem, with the exception of, I understand that the Attorney General's opponent is, is criticizing him for it, but generally where is the Democratic Party in Wisconsin in this moment when Trump is also saying, hey, maybe we should arm teachers, uh, where is the unified response? Why are we not seizing the narrative? I mean, it's just like such a ridiculous proposal on so many levels. And uh, there are like important other proposals. And I think nationally, for a change, the Democratic Party is doing a pretty good job pushing back, largely thanks to the students and teachers from the high school where the shooting took place in Florida and other survivors of major shootings. But uh, locally, I just don't see it. Well, you know why. They're conflicted. They think that somehow this is... Uh, bad politically in, mo in, 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 the, the, in vast regions of the state. And so they haven't figured out a plan on this, so their plan is silence. That's what would be my interpretation. Just any time that you're silent, people who don't agree with you will assume that you have the position that they don't want you to have. No one's going to like, oh, that person's definitely with me because they're not saying anything. Oh, I agree. And the other side's defining the agenda, and it's going to just, just, the Republicans are great at just saying whatever the polling says they should say about you, no matter what you've done. Exactly. So speaking of silence, we have to go to a break <laughs> here, but we're going to bring this back up because I want to talk about the political aspect of it because that's very important. Again, we are the Battleground Wisconsin with Citizen Action, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. And uh, before we left, we were talking about our Attorney General Brad Schimmel's idea to push arming teachers. Um, the context is, nationally, Trump has been also talking about this. We know that there was a bill, I believe Andre Jacques um, may have been you the... like to make <laughs> fun of the French descendants well, of Representative come Jacques. On. The French <laughs> would be very, very unhappy with, what on, with the Andre that they have leashed upon, <laughs> unleashed upon the greater Kiwani area. Um, so this has been around, and the first time it came around, it was largely just lampooned, right? Now, it might have been Lassay. Anyway, somewhere up there. Um, it's just lampoon in, in and of itself, <laughs> yes. We won't talk about big cowboy No, he's cowboy in the Walker hats. administration now. But, yeah. so, but this thing is back, and it's kind of back with a little more teeth because Trump had started talking about it, right? And, and this is still a state. Politically, let's remind ourselves that Trump won. Right. And one with a certain narrative going out into certain parts of the state, which Robert was hinting at before the call. There is no way that the AG is running out with this without having some kind of polling that tells him in an off year election where turnout is essential for their base, that he doesn't have something that tells him this is great. And it and 
and as you brought up, it's puts some Democrats, particularly rural Democrats who, in Wisconsin in a box, or at least a perceived box, and here it is. Um, but shout out to Josh Call, who's actually speaking very clearly, calls it, I have to find the quote here, but basically says this is ridiculous and that we, we ought, it's absurd, I believe he might have called it. Anyways, further comment. I mean, I, I do think it's possible to be pro-gun or um, someone who recreationally hunts and have a, a positive message and how we need to make changes to protect children in schools. And uh, I've heard it from a couple people. One person is Randy Bryce, who talks about how using an assault rifle would ruin the quality of the venison if you're deer hunting, right? I mean, it's just like there are ways to communicate effectively about how insane our current gun policy is. And, you know, even there are so many, I mean, I'll point out a few in a moment. There are so many reasons why it's like absolutely insane to say that the solution is arming teachers. One of them is that even if you have an armed teacher, somebody with an assault rifle, with like an automatic weapon, is like a military, is like a terrorist in our midst. That is like very hard to fight bad again. The, the second thing is that, and this is something I've heard other people say, from a racial justice perspective, uh, arming black teachers it seems like a recipe for those black teachers to end up in body bags. And, you know, I've seen people on the internet and uh, on the radio talk about Philando Castile, who is a beloved community member, worked in a school, and was a legal gun owner, maybe a member of the NRA, who didn't stop him from being killed by police at a traffic stop. So who is um, the move to arm everybody really protecting? It's not to protect everybody. And it's certainly not to protect students, I don't think. This is a desperate, like, response to what we've talked about last week. If you don't have anything that you can put out there that really actually addresses what's happening in our country, you come up with ridiculous things like saying we're going to like arm everybody or put metal detectors up in school, like fencing in schools, I believe, was one of the first things that started to get floated. Um, yeah, that's what this is a product of. I think this is simply, you know, ideology tends to purify and perfect itself and work its way out to its logical conclusion. And so if you believe that guns are related to safety, then why not have more guns for more safety? And if you believe in this as a cultural thing, the fantasy world of, world of Hollywood, which does bear a lot of responsibility and still does for this, where the good guy always turns out okay and grabs the guy out of the ankle holster and is not killed by the bad guy, as opposed to the reality that most people who keep uh, guns in their houses, people don't want to hear this, right? Actually have them used against them or they're used accidentally, much more likely for that to happen than for them to be successful to defend themselves, okay? It's just true. Now, we need to be fact, we're not fact-driven in this country. It's like global warming. There's a whole part of our country that will never, ever believe that, but, that, but that's science and that's true. Um, so you have that, and that's hard to push against, the worldview part. Then you have this malicious lobby called the NRA, which has uh, transformed itself over the last three or four decades from just a, a, an association, a typical kind of pressure group, into this cultural movement, which is to the far extreme fringe, but is able, because of emotional intensity, to win elections, win elections in anywhere but, but the most urban and progressive areas, because there's a group of people who will just vote on this. And to do that, they've just lied. They've lied not only about guns in our society, but they've lied about what the opposition wants to do. The idea that Democrats are even proposing in their wildest dreams anything that would threaten anyone's Second Amendment rights is totally absurd. 
we're talking about weapons of war here, but they're able to mobilize people. So the question is, with, with these brilliant students who are really talented, they sound so much better than a lot of elected officials, I've got to tell you, a lot of them need to be in office. Um, if they can keep the emotional pressure on and start winning elections on this, then that will change things. And we've got to find better wedges on this, right? Um, and we try with the, um, what was the thing in Las Vegas that they, where the guy modified the, the gun? Pump the, stocks. The, the bump yeah, stock, yeah. they bump wouldn't stock. ban that. Now we have this particular weapon that is the weapon of choice of mass shooters that obviously is not any good for deer hunting, for example, or anything else other than mass killing of people. Uh, so I think I, I, it's very heartening to see Marco Rubio get just grilled yesterday yep. and to see Rick Scott, Governor Scott in Florida, wants to run for U.S. Senate, ducking hiding. the students yeah. in hiding. Yeah. So that's really interesting. I think there should be real mobilizations aimed at Attorney General Schimmel because he's up for yep. re-election. Yeah, no, I think, the, I think he's gotten way out here, and kudos to call for calling him out right away on this. Well, and so this is what makes me crazy about our Democratic gubernatorial candidates, because as a political operative, as someone who worked uh, for a mayor of a major city, someone who worked in labor, uh, an organizer now working with the Working Families Party, it is like not hard to figure out how in this moment to respond effectively. And it's not just so you win your campaign, but you are now like leaders of the party. You have a responsibility to drive the message. You can get press better than your average assembly person. And where in the world are you? And I'll, you know, two examples come to mind. Tony Evers, I mean, he is the moral high ground right now to talk about keeping students safe. Why does he not have a press conference surrounded by students Wherever it is in a rural area of Madison talking about this, Kelda Roy is a mother of young children, and I've heard her speak movingly on this. I know how much she cares. You know, why, why is she not finding an effective way, or is her staff or whoever not finding an effective way to seize the narrative? And I won't just put it on them. It's a very challenging environment right now uh, to, to break through. Where is the Democratic Party? And I, I, it's just very frustrating to me. Look, the NRA is so agitated, and gun owners are so agitated right now because of the NRA's years of... of propaganda, the most, most sleazy Miffler propaganda imaginable, they're going to say this about these candidates anyway. So you might as well get the benefit of being for something. If you think you're not going to be called someone who wants to take away everyone's gun by the NRA, credibly with its audience in the next election, then you're, you're just deluded. And, and the tide is turning. And Robert, you mentioned the Women's March earlier. There are thousands of women in Wisconsin, in rural areas, in urban areas, across the state who are mobilized and upset, and a huge political drive for them is protecting their children. And let's broaden out the policy, because even the strongest things Democrats are proposing, I, I hate to tell you, it, it, will, it doesn't do nearly enough, and there will still be mass shootings, okay? That may be le slightly less effective, which is good. So taking on mental health, understanding that most mentally ill people are not violent and they're more likely to be the victims of violence than the consequences, but there's a small sliver of them that are violent. We need universal mental health care, which means universal health care. We need to be serious about connecting these issues. And Scott Walker will say, oh, I put another 0.001% into a reimbursement rate for mental health, so I did something on mental health. Right. 
And, and this is, so just very quickly, this is why, to go back to not beat up on everyone, I just shouted out their name, but also to, 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 I mean, this is why there are certain candidates in the governor's race, including the people I named, but not limited to them, who are better positioned to speak to the needs of the electorate and seize the narrative in a way that beats Walker, because Walker actually cannot do those things. I, I don't think anyone takes him as being credible if he talks about trying to protect children, for example. Well, I'm, I'm really thrilled with the discussion because it was exactly where I was hoping it would go. I think there is an opportunity here and it is a time where we need to be leading on this. Not, and, and not only because it's the right moral thing to do, but I think electorally it, it is the right thing to do. You brought it up about women and, and w where women are on this issue. I, I, I got to bring up the TMJ4 story that went and interviewed parents to weigh in. So it was not hard, I'm sure, for them to find a mother or a parent in Milwaukee, and they did, who was against this and spoke out the way I think most people feel, that it's absurd, just terrible. I feel that uh, it makes it more unsafe for kids. They're, we want fewer guns, less access to them. Then the article says, others feel the exact opposite. You know what? They couldn't find a parent who wasn't this guy, Nick Clark, they call him a, a parent and gun advocate. Yeah. He's not only a gun advocate. Was he's he like handed the, over by the NRA? No, he's the guy from the concealed carry. He's like literally in the small fringe group that like thinks you should, as Robert said, the logical extension, have guns everywhere, right? So the only parent they could find was not really just a random parent where if you watch the story, they clearly have a woman by her car. They just got her at a school. They probably had 20 of these interviews. And the one parent they could find... In Milwaukee, called, in journalism, it's called balance. Yes, even but, though it overrepresents. But I wanted to bring it up because it shows that there really isn't balance. This is not, and the public is in a new place on this. So with that, we got to get out of here. But we are the Battleground Wisconsin, and you can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We are Citizen Action. And you can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Before we left, we were having a really good conversation about our attorney general wanting to arm teachers. Yeah. So we are going to switch topics here, and we want to talk about a report that the ACLU has put out. And uh, I know we, we record Thursday mornings. It, it's gone national. I know a national NPR is talking about it. And it essentially says that the Milwaukee Police Department are violating the rights of people of color because of unconstitutional stops. The report has found that essentially... Uh, African-Americans are being stopped at seven times the rate of white folks. So, panel, obviously this is, this is big news, although it's not like a shocker, I think, to any of us. And I, I do want to point out, I have heard that these numbers are in line with other large urban areas. So, like, this is not, like, unique to Milwaukee, but these numbers are stark. Um, Rebecca. Uh, I'm originally from New York City, where we had the unconstitutional stop and frisk policy under uh, Mayor Bloomberg, and it was discontinued under Mayor de Blasio. And, uh, you know, stops, including traffic stops, are um, part and parcel to, I think, that same type of policy. And, uh, you know, I think there's no doubt that there's racial profiling of policing. I think that sometimes when we say that, people hear it as us saying that cops are all intentionally racist. I think what the ACLU is doing a good job of and other folks is pointing out these large-scale policies that uh, have racial consequences and are racist. And I think 
there, there are quite a few. These aren't the only policies we should look at. We should look at who's policing whom, but this is a huge issue. And what they'll say on the other side um, is that the reason why there are more people of color being stopped is that there are more police policing uh, communities of color. But th we just know that that is so clearly not the case. And I, I want to throw it over to Robert um, before I talk about local races, but this is something that we've been talking about recently with one of our candidates for county supervisor. And you'll be hard-pressed to find a person of color in Milwaukee who either personally has not, has not been stopped in one of these um, racially profiled stops or has a family member or loved one who's been stopped. On the, the national NPR story that you referenced this morning, there was an interview with a young man who was walking home from college who was stopped and the cop said, do you have marijuana? And he's like, no, of course I don't have marijuana. He, oh, he did not. marijuana, right? yes. Yeah, Every, I mean, everybody smells of marijuana <laughs> right. these days, right? Yes. Well, if you're a person of color, yeah, you smell you, of marijuana. I right. smell marijuana on you. Ridiculous. Oh, I can do whatever I want now. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes, and Rebecca, you accurately point out our former chief here in Milwaukee, Chief Flynn, that is the argument Chief Flynn is making, and Robert, as I send it to you, the argument essentially is people, African Americans in particular, that's where all the crime is, or that's where particularly the chief's point is, violent crime is, and that the people in those communities want policing to deal with the crime, and so hence we're there to do that, and so, of course, by definition, those numbers are going to result. So it begs the question, he's, there's, he's partially right, but he misses the whole thing. Is that the right way to actually make us safe, right? Like, does that deal with crime by putting tons of police into an area? Uh, this is profoundly important because this is the, this is the mechanism by which we get mass incarceration and yep. by which we get... Uh, African-Americans and Latinos serving jail sentences much more frequently for crimes we know whites commit just as often, right? Such as, you know, low-level and mid-level, almost all drug offenses. Or smelling right? like marijuana, obviously. Right. And so what we're saying here, and, and of course they couldn't get a, a, a response, NPR and WWM, from Mayor Barrett or from the acting chief, so they dragged up a recording of, of Chief Flynn saying, it's uh, not our fault, that all the problems are... are, are I'll are, say this to Flynn's yeah. credit. Flynn is very blunt and yeah. like an ardent supporter of his position. And he's kind of like, look, I'm doing what I was hired to do. And that's what I think is the that question That may well here. be case. That too. is yes. the question. What so, he was hired to do. Right. right? Flawed strategy. So here's, here's the methodology here. And it, it does, since the right loves to talk about the Constitution, it flies in the face of the Fourth Amendment, what yep. the Founding Fathers said. But apparently that literal interpretation of that amendment is not important, but the Second Amendment, the militia part, was just a drafting error, apparently. So anyway, what they're saying is, is that... that's a comic somewhere. Sorry, yeah, no. That most of these stops are, have no basis. And they had three different experts look, and they all agreed. And so 350,000 stops that had no basis... They're much, they're, they're much more likely to be in the African-American Latino community because that's where they're focusing. And so it gets down to the methodology of should you, uh, should you investigate someone when there is probable cause, which is a fundamental constitutional issue, right? Or are we made safer if we just have a dragnet that subjects every, a huge percentage of the people in the community to, to traffic stops, to, fr to friskings, to just being stopped on the street as pedestrians, which is all part of, the, part of this study. Um, and then we'll find a smaller group of people who are violating the law and who are a danger, but we won't find that same smaller group of people who are white because they're not being subjected to the same thing. And that literally is the recipe 
for race-based mass incarceration, for Wisconsin having the highest proportion of African-American men in jail in the country, much more than Texas, Oklahoma, Alabama, any other state you want to mention. And, you know, in New York, what they found is that something like 99% of all stops didn't result in anything, right? right. And so it, it, other than the trauma and humiliation of the person being stopped, and I think that is what this is about. It is about an occupying force in certain communities that is perpetuating trauma and making people feel unsafe. And to bring it back to our local election, yep. you know, uh, we have a county supervisor candidate, Sparkle Ashley. She's taken on Deanna Alexander for folks um, and other parts of the state who don't know Deanna. She is somebody who has mocked uh, men killed by police. She is someone who's voted against anti-discrimination, against sanctuary cities, very close uh, personal friend and ally of Sheriff David Clark, hateful woman. Uh, her challenger, Sparkle Ashley, is a full-time social worker, has been knocking on doors for over a year, is uh, somebody who is running on building bridges, making her community better. And she has had, as an African-American woman in Milwaukee, really unfortunate experiences with police that have, quite frankly, been traumatic for her. And she spoke really movingly about that on Resistance Radio, I think, last week. Yep. But this is something that is now coming up in the election and how it's... Um, painted by the media is that she is the one who is out of bounds for I think she was venting frustration and cursing about it um, and not that the system is out of bounds the police department the mayor is out of bounds for allowing this racist policy to stop her while she's lawfully driving her husband's car and you know one other thing I'll say just to bring politics into it because I always like to is that Milwaukee is currently bidding on the DNC for 2020 if Mayor Barrett wants the DNC to come to Milwaukee, he should probably say something about this and quickly because this is not a good look for the city of Milwaukee and the Democratic Party is not going to want to be associated with this kind of policy. Yeah, that is a hugely awesome point. Hi. Now, I just say this, right, because we need alternatives. So they're going to say, if we really push this and we need to, they're going to try to duck this report. But if it comes down to it, they're going to say, Essentially, that this violation of the 99% where nothing is found, should include Sparkle, because they said they smelled marijuana, then found nothing, right, in the case where that's being used against her. I think uh, our producer that, smells like... Yeah, oh, wait, no. That it, is, that it is worth it, because we're catching these 1% of the used Trumpian language bad guys. And so the question is, I think we should just say it's unconstitutional, we can't do it, but is it really true that this is the best way to deal with the quote-unquote bad guys? Nope. And I want to put it back around to our discussion about guns. What really far-seeing and visionary people like the Public Defender's Office say about this is, is that the way to actually address this is to treat the first contact with the criminal justice system of a, of a young person as a public health yep. issue and to do direct intervention immediately to find out why this happens and to, and, and to provide support to the young person and to, and to look how they're doing in school and the family and prevent them because that, that becomes a thing where they develop a record, it gets worse and worse, and, and then eventually they're, they're imprisoned. And we don't do that. In fact, it seems like the contact with the criminal justice system makes it more likely that they'll be incarcerated, where it should actually be a, an early warning sign where we could prevent any further problems. Well, that's just it. That's the long-term vision. It's really important, and it ties together a number of issues, but it really does lay it out. Um, but with that, we have got to wrap up the show. It's been a great discussion, um, and we want to thank our producer, Brian Wildridge. He makes the podcast, this show, happen every week, and we really thank him for that. 
And again, we are Citizen Action, and you can find us at citizenactionwi.org. And you're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. We will see you next week.